Sorry, Mr. Zombie, maximum 999 corpses. In honor of Rebecca, what is your favorite haunted house? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with the awesome Victorian mansion from the Casper movie. You could have a party where all your friends come, and then the cute ghost boy comes down the stairs, and he kisses you, and everybody sees it, and it's awesome. I'm Matt Patches. I might be going with the complete opposite of that answer. I'm going with Haosu from uh, the film Haosu. Which means house, right? It means house. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I'm going with the Changeling House because infinite balls. Do we make Jordan go? Am I jumping in? Yeah. I'm special guest Jordan Hoffman back for the attack. And uh, let me tell you, if you want to consider a haunted house could potentially fly through uh, space and go interplanetary... And be owned by a corrupt mining consortium, then the best haunted house movie of all time is Ridley Scott's Alien. It's a good answer. That's not a house. It's a haunted house. <laughs> That's a place you live where people in... sleep. They sleep yeah. there and work there. They wake up at the first scene. There. You wouldn't yeah. call yeah. a hotel yeah. your house. We when... it, Royal Tenenbaum would. <laughs> <laughs> also, The Shining. Would you not call The Shining a haunted house? I'd call it. A no, I wouldn't. I'd call it a haunted hotel. Wow. Mm. House is anywhere ne- you hang your home, man. Next hang your hat. The haunted mansion. Calling the spaceship house? from a- patches, Alien patches. a haunted <laughs> house is, is, is like no, calling I'm, your he, Mac truck. You need to in the sea. Hey, patches. You're you're commercial commercially zoning horror movies. It's not fun. <laughs> yeah, man. And <laughs> tis the season. And, and dig. Here's why I said it because. Alien, which is good movie, which is good has, movie, which is good movie, <laughs> has all the tra- all it is is a haunted house movie. People flip out about it. What it is? They're haunted house. They're trapped in a place, spooking around, walking from room to room, and the next thing you know, Yafet Koto's dead. Next thing you know, Harry Dean Stanton's dead because the, of the monster. Is the thing also oh. a haunted house? No, because that's oh, um, that's. Uh, uh, they're outside too much. Slasher. Oh, they're outside too they're much. Outside. I feel like this is why we keep them lightning round, because I was with you, Jordan, this until is... you got super specific with it is... and skipped over the weird psychosexual creature alien. Oh, yeah. We'll... And, and it's a psychosexual creature alien. Dave's right. <laughs> lightning and thunder round. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's 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 hot. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 322, Pandemic 32. It's the week of Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. That is the day that in 1964, the Rex Harrison and Audrey Hepburn, My Fair Lady, premiered. Uh, the rain have... in Spain stays <laughs> mainly in the plain. Yeah, that's, that's about right. And um, we don't really ever have guests on this show, and I feel like whenever we do, it's always Jordan. So, <laughs> Jordan, thank you for coming. I'm happy to be back on my 23rd visit to the War Room. Um, similar bro- to My Fair Lady, we will hopefully turn uh, Jordan <laughs> into an English lady by the end of yeah. this program. Make He's me presentable raw... at, the, at, at, the, uh, at the horse races. I don't want to tell... 
It's the what, Ascot blo- opening day on what, the Who does she say? Come on, move your blooming arse. Um, yeah, move, it, move your blooming arse. Yeah, I would never say such a thing. Never, <laughs> never. Uh, well, we don't have David because no. it's his birthday. That's the only reason. Please. Um, but Patches, were you going to do reviews even in his absence? We do have a review to read. Um, is it okay if I read it uh, in tribute to David? Uh, sure, yes. he will sure. never listen to this so he'll never know <laughs> yeah if, if you're gonna you're gonna read it like david will you sigh a lot and just, uh, well, uh. Wow, wow i didn't know he was such a fragile boy a that's how he sighs i go hey david how you doing uh. <laughs> that's a, that does seem on character when you do it in context uh this review is from matt from clearwater is that a uh is that a Westworld reference? Um, I think that's Sweetwater. Oh, Sweetwater, you're right. Uh, the review is, An all-around great film and pop, pop culture podcast. Have been listening for a few years. Even when I have no intention or ability to watch what they're discussing, I still find listening to them, I believe that's us, discuss a great way to spend my day. A highlight of the podcast is that David reads the reviews without pre-screening them. Uh-oh, he's not <laughs> here to do that. Um it reminds Wait, did you pre-screen me, this? Yeah, I did not pre-screen this, so well, I'm, see, I'm living go. up to David here. Uh, it reminds me of how I grew up. My father was a relentlessly self-improving owner from Belgium with low-grade narcolepsy and a penchant for a buggery. My mother was a 15-year-old French prostitute named Chloe with web feet. My father would womanize. He would drink. He would make outrageous claims. He accused chestnuts of being lazy. Like he invented the question mark. <laughs> Sometimes he would accuse chestnuts of being lazy. The sort of general malaise that only the genius possess and the insane lament. My childhood was typical. <laughs> Summers in Rangoon, luge lessons. In the spring, we'd make meat helmets. When I was insolent, I was placed in a burlap bag and beaten with reeds. Pretty standard, really. At the age of 12, I received my first scribe. At the age of 14, a, Zorstra, uh, a Zoroastrian named Vima ritualistically shaved my testicles. There really is nothing like shorn, scr- shorn scrotum. It's breathtaking. I suggest you try it. Thank you for that very insightful five-star review. Oh, it took me so long to realize that I knew that. Like, well after, I think Dave tipped me off. Should I watch Austin Powers again? You should. We, I mean, we, didn't we talk about that on the podcast much earlier in the quarantine? Yeah, we've talked about it at some point. And, like, Wait, it holds that was up from Austin Powers? In, yeah, it's Dr. Evil's monologue. Oh, and here I thought the writer was being very clever. I think you might have been <laughs> too really Were you too old to fall for Austin Powers? No, no, I liked Austin Powers. It was great. At the time. T- t- come on, tell me who you work for, number two. That was very funny. I thought that was a very good scene. Um, but, you know, I never saw the third Austin Powers. Or, Gold I, I Member? I never saw that one. I don't the know if I saw the third Gold Member, line. the character is funny. Gold. Mm. Classic when he says that. Yeah, I never Beyonce's his, in it. He I eats know. his own skin. Skin? He eats he his does? own skin. Yes, Ugh, that's not I as foul as when that. Austin Powers drinks nutty shit uh, in the second movie. That's so almost as bad that. as that's almost as bad as Jeffrey Tubin gratifying himself during oh, a work Lord. zoom. Hey, we haven't even well, gotten yeah. to the mini segment. We, do, we don't <laughs> do we don't do transitions on this show. Oh, <laughs> that's right, we don't do transitions. <laughs> Leave a review. David will read it next week. Maybe we'll make David read that monologue all over again next week. If Done. you leave a review between now and then, David will have to do it. Done.
weekend, I went to Manderley again and again <laughs> and again because I read the book Rebecca for the first time. I watched the new Netflix adaptation of Rebecca and I rewatched the Hitchcock movie Rebecca, which is on YouTube in not great quality, but it's there. Um, so I feel like a little insane because I've been like living in the world of this book and which like was very faithfully adapted twice. Like both movies are different, but they are very close to the book. Um, the new Netflix movie like really sucks. Uh, and Jordan, I think you agree with me that this movie is truly pointless. It's actually, it's not like I'm going to come bad. here to defend. So I'm well, excited. Hey, to no, hear no, why no. It's, it's, it's I, not I, half bad until it gets to the end where it becomes this like really, it's a very weird ending. drama. Um, it's just and, but, a mess. but it doesn't know it has no, but yeah. Chris and Scott Thomas is great. No, can you agree on that? No, oh, I can not. Okay. <laughs> she could have been great. She's now, been. She's given no. Hold on, before we get too no far. Runway. Yeah, I I have to imagine there are people who listen to the podcast who have not seen the Hitchcock Rebecca film, who have not read the novel. It's actually, I don't believe it's that popular of a novel. You don't meet. It is in English. Oh, hang on, hang on. It's hang very on. big in English. Katie is pulling a out a copy. Of, copy I have a copy of in right front now. of me. It is something about... It's signed it by Rebecca. Copy. It's literally never been out of print. Like, it's been massively successful. I mean, I, like, now, it's been out for 80 years. Like, it's not what it was before. Okay, they're not doing TikToks about the, the Rebecca novel. No. Maybe they I mean. will now. Um, it's on Netflix. But wait, time here's a, here's, I have... Wait, 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 wait. Okay. Bex is just trying Jordan's, to explain the Jordan's plot of the movie. No, I'm not... I'm not Jordan, what do you got to say? No, I was just going to say, uh, it's, it was a tremendously successful book over the years. Less so today, but I think in Britain, it still is, like... Like a classic. Like, you know how over here It's like in The America, Great Gatsby. Yeah, bingo. There you okay. go. In America, we read The Great Gatsby. In Britain, they read Rebecca. That is but you know what, damn it? Know. This is America. It's an American podcast, so fuck them all. Keep going. <laughs> My point is, I have not read the book, and I had not seen the Hitchcock movie. I still have not seen the Hitchcock Rebecca. And so I imagine there are a lot of people like that. What is Rebecca about before we get too far into it? Katie. Oh, Okay. Uh, it's about a woman. We do not know her name. She's not given a name in the book or any of the adaptations. She is a ladies maid. It was in Mar- Monte Carlo sometime in the 30s-ish, um, like between the two British wars. She meets a widower named Maxim de Winter and marries him in kind of a whirlwind. And he brings her back to his huge estate in Britain called Manderley. And he is kind of weird talking about his ex-wife, who she finds out was named Rebecca. And then there is this woman who runs the household named Mrs. Danvers, who really loved Rebecca and really does not like this new girl. And she is kind of shy and insecure and only becomes more so as it seems that everyone in the house is obsessed with the ex-wife and doesn't give a shit about her uh and so her spirit metaphorically haunts the house which inspired a lightning round question which patch is objected to um i don't know that's kind of it right like you if, if you if you know that format you will see references to this everywhere like this formula is referenced constantly now you have hit you have hit all the all the big plot points and in the hitchcock version there are elements of supernatural things that don't actually you know it's not a ghost story but it's in her mind it's a ghost story um and for its time you should point out uh in 1940 it it was magnificent it's one of hitchcock's best it's every frame is gorgeous and dripping in texture and it won best picture the only hitchcock movie to the win only best hitchcock picture. to ever win best picture and uh maxim de winter played of course by the very handsome Laurence olivier and i love army hammer but he's not Laurence olivier sorry <laughs> um, i'm not sure even army hammer would have tried to make that comparison had he no. not starred in this movie and like basically asked you to do it yeah um <laughs> and uh it's a great exercise in tension and Ben Wheatley just does not know what he's just bit off way more than he can chew. It's so lopsided. It starts out okay, the new one, mm-hmm. and it certainly looks pretty. You know, the the 
the Monte Carlo looks lovely and the breakfast they have is gorgeous and the music is good. And there's like one, um, one create, there's like one creative moment. Well, there's two creative moments in this film. One is a little bit of anachronistic music. When they leave Monte Carlo, they go to Mandalay and you hear a song by the, uh, late sixties folk, uh, rock outfit Pentangle, which is like a poor man's (laughs) Fairport convention (laughs) <laughs> which is very spooky and eerie. And that's a great scene. I'm like, oh my God, this movie's going to be good. <laughs> and then there's like a scene, which I didn't like, which is like, you know, people think, oh, I don't know about this movie, Rebecca, but like, it's got to be supernatural, right? So clearly some some suit was like, ah, you got to put in a scary shot for the trailer. So she has like a dream sequence where demons are devouring her in the in the leaves or whatever. It's just such... Garbage. Well, there's also they do a little bit with the party, the costume party, where she's kind of like wandering around and like finds what kind of these like ghoulish makes it versions. garbage. Like what? Why does that make it garbage? Because it's like, shoehorned. It's absolutely shoehorned in. It yeah, does not fit. it's it, it doesn't stable. stylistically fit with the rest of the movie. Like either you want to have this like stiff upper lip, British aristocratic, like I don't fit in here thing, or you want to like really lean into the supernatural. Like right, she's not. She doesn't have more dreams time. after that. No, yeah, it's no. just kind of like there is like a really like putting too fine a point on the metaphor of mm. the whole thing. Um, but Patch, so, so you were not familiar with the Hitchcock thing. Jordan, and I keep talking about it. What what struck you about this that made you like it? Oh, like I'm not raving about this movie, you know, just to be clear. But I think Lily James is pretty good in it. It's odd, oddly enough, Army Hammer as Maxim is like a nothing burger. Like he doesn't, yeah. he barely exists. Um, maybe by design, he just needs to be the handsome guy in the movie, the handsome guy in Monte Carlo in the beginning. You can understand why she's falling in love with him in this beautiful place. I, I have to say, I think the photography is really quite beautiful and it works to uh, swing us in a completely other direction by the time she gets to the mansion, to the manor, and her life begins to be ruined. Um, this this dream moment in Monte Carlo is just utterly destroyed when she she gets to this mansion and the kind of toxicity of the moment uh, erodes her being. Um, and as you said at the top, I think that Kristen Scott Thomas is really chilly in this movie. It's not, it doesn't, has. It, I didn't find it to have like a lot of deep meaning or anything, but as a kind of period piece, costume piece, uh, Lily James going kooky piece, um, I kind of dug it. I totally agree with you. The ending is off the rails bad. Uh, why is well, it a like, courtroom inter- drama? Why is it like a whodunit Agatha Christie book or something at the end? Yeah. And, well, and, that, well, go ahead, Jordan. Well, I was going to say, I, 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 Kristen Scott Thomas is the best thing in the movie because there's nothing else good in the movie, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but I do feel that Wheatley did not exploit her at all. Like, you want her to be, you know terrifying you want her to camp it up you want uh you know you want it to be like oh man she's gonna glower like no one's glowered before and it's like eh, all right like i feel like she could she was like ready to sink her teeth into it and it's escalating and then there's like the one scene um i don't want to give away too many spoilers but and it also like ramps up out of nowhere it's like oh mrs danvers being creepy mrs danvers being creepy and suddenly there's that scene at the window it's like whoa where did that come yeah from? although that kind of happens uh, in the book too like all of a sudden you're like just, oh she's really going for she's it tr- yeah and it's just like but she's not that she's not screaming like i just feel like if you're gonna do this film in general you gotta you you're, you gotta come correct you're taking a classic i mean you know Hitchcockian is a word in the dictionary. You know, if you're going to try to compete with that, 
You but he's really not trying to it. compete with it. I mean, it's How impossible not to. It's impossible is... not to. But why does the movie have to have that that burden? Because it's a really famous movie, and he did nothing else. He didn't. I mean, the only differentiator is that it's in color. I mean, and and that's and it. I, so I think that like either because he wanted to or because this is how you make it today. Like they try hard to empower this main character and like have her be like more actively involved and like not be this like shy girl because there's this like you know Maxim's relationship with her is so paternalistic and that like fits right. with like the class of the people at the time and in the movie it's a lot like that too and you can't really get away with it in the same way. But the the message of female empowerment doesn't fit with the story at all because this whole story is about someone who is in over her head who is constantly yeah. like belittled in her own mind by the people around her it just doesn't make any sense to try to make this I, protagonist as powerful as the movie wants i do to think be. it's odd i mean the movie i i talked to wheatley for the movie too and um, and you're a big ben wheatley fan i too. am I mean, we, I we've am. talked about this him is certainly a lot on not show. kill list okay this is not his weird <laughs> I, I mean all of his weird experiment movies are much better than this uh, no doubt um and it was odd to see him kind of step into this work for hire remake um but i think maybe he uh maybe he got a divorce or something you know <laughs> yeah, no. he, well he's he's set to uh make a tomb raider sequel next so oh, wow. he's really just going gonzo um, oh he owes somebody money yeah, multiple seriously. divorces to pay for uh but he you know he mentioned that the Hayes code was really restrictive to the original rebecca and i wondered from you katie and jordan um like, do you find that the sexuality has been ramped up here? or Because if it has, it hasn't been ramped up that much. Like, yeah. couldn't this movie be more sexual and be more interesting? I feel like the whole, again, like, you know, reading the book and knowing the era, like, this is the whole period, like, like, did I talk about Brief Encounter on this show, like a movie I watched for the first time since the pandemic started? It was about all these people who were like very class conscious in Britain and they don't want to say anything and they don't want to misstep ever. Is that a ever, David Lean so- movie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It made the same year as Rebecca. It's like right oh, around wow. the same time. Yeah. Um, but it's so emblematic of that period of time. And so I feel like you can't be really sexy. Like it all has to be below the surface and you can do it like kind of the smoldering thing. And a lot of people have like a lesbian read on the relationship between Mrs. Danvers and the main character. Um, but I think like showing them having sex on the beach in Monte Carlo, I don't think it adds anything at all i think they, the thing that they couldn't i mean jeffrey tubin liked it more though <laughs> oh my god <laughs> the thing the hayes code did to the original is that they couldn't talk about how uh spoilers uh they like rebecca had a bunch of affairs and she was sleeping with all these men like i think they couldn't address that directly in the movie right. but that's all i can think of really and they had to change the um without getting into too many spoilers uh change the more violent nature of how rebecca died right yeah um uh the the book and the current film are the same hitchcock's version tames it down a little bit um but uh i mean yes the original is much more you know below the surface restrained sexuality but you know Laurence olivier is like you know he's he's this beautiful man at the beginning you fall in love with him. You're like, yes, take me away to Manderley. And then you go with him. And then he begins to change. And there's a little bit of you get in the head of this woman of how can I please Maxim de Winter? Because he's mm-hmm. clearly unhappy with me because he's thinking about Rebecca. Yeah. And it works. I mean, I saw this movie as a kid. And even then I was like, oh, won't Maxim love me? You're like, what can I do to make him love me? It really works on you. Yeah. And because you know that he's grieving and you know that he's got a secret and in this, it's just like, eh, Army's like just not there. Yeah. It's like there's he's no really scenes of not, him like, not. It's not, not that he's mean it. to her. It's not that he's cold to her or unapproachable. It's just like, it's just blank. And I do think Army Hammer is a good actor. I mean, when he's in the right role. I just think that 
you know, the screenwriters here, and it's not a bunch of nobodies. It's Jane Goldman is one of the screenwriters here. And Wheatley just, they just, I think they just whiffed. I think they... I thought, I think, I think the script off... thinks it's going to be more of Crimson Peak than it turned out to be. Yeah. And that, yeah, like, the that vision crazy. seems yeah. kind of caught in the middle of a lot of ideas. I Again, yeah. I like, they push the cinematography so hard, you're kind of waiting for the, either the drama or the surreal nature of it to, to go further. Um, and, and then the And last... knowing Wheatley, it's like... It There's so many nuts. bizarre yeah. ways for him to go with this movie, and, he, and it's all buttoned up. The last scene of Hitchcock's version, no spoilers, is a big, iconic moment. You know, the visual imagery of that last sequence. And they just don't do it in this. They just, like, mm. go w- turn away for, from it for no reason. And the endings are different, and the ending that's in this is like, ah, movie's over. And it's like, it's well, a, the ending in this is like a happy. It, it it puts over this voiceover dialogue from Lily James that's like laughably terrible. It's yeah. so bad, uh, and not from the book or, yeah. or the movie at all. So I mean, it, you know, uh, it's on Netflix, so a lot of people will see it. It's it it does look beautiful. One hundred percent agree. Uh, it's just it's just a pity because you know if you're gonna do it, do it right. And I think they I think they goofed so. It's it's truly the Netflix Netflix version of this story. Yeah, uh, in a, in yeah. A, not to be so rude to a massive corporation that's destroying culture as we know it, but you know. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned for our trial of the Chicago Seven <laughs> discussion. Yeah. You're right. Smoke from the Lucy drip, hold it like a crucifix. Blow from the nose, I'm a dragon to a nose. Got an average of being excellent, the media just don't. Like the ratio of heroin, the laxative is sold. Authorities are spoken, a man of the All right, so for the last 800 years, we've been at home, distanced from each other. I hate this. I hate doing this on Zoom so much. Right now, I am watching Jordan Hoffman <laughs> simulate pleasuring himself via the magical tool known as Zoom. Um, none of you will have to see it, and that is a good thing. But, uh, yeah, we're partially inspired by um, famed journalist Jeffrey Tubin getting caught possibly watching a cam girl and then being on a Zoom call with his colleagues. I wanted to ask you guys a, a, a more G-rated question, which is like over these over this time when Zoom has, I think, dominated – Forms of entertainment, whether you're talking to your friends, you're playing movie trivia on Friday nights, or you're joining movie clubs around the world, or you're doing Jackbox games with Zoom and and uh, Steam or whatever. Like, I'm wondering if you we have developed Zoom protocol, if if Zoom culture has become more solidified over the last months. How do how do you act normal on Zoom? What's the right way to be on Zoom? I mean, something I've been thinking about, which I don't know if this is universally accepted. I never eat on Zoom. I can't imagine ever, Ugh. like, I mean, even muting yourself. I don't want someone to watch me eat. Does anyone eat on Zoom? Uh, I've been on, like, hours-long Zoom meetings finishing things. Mm. And I'll just, like, turn off my video and audio and, like, walk to the other side of the room, but still be able to hear things. Yeah, that seems that I'm seems a big uh, pretzel eater, so I'll kind of dip out of screen and mute myself. To chomp a pretzel, oh, mm. like the gate, like the gamer thing, where you just you flip up the microphone, yes, and eat your chips, 
Jordan, what will you do and not do on Zoom? You know, I I, I uh, don't Zoom as much as, as you guys, I guess. So, um... Not I, a corporate office drone? No, I don't Zoom that much. Uh, so I haven't really eaten, but I don't, um... I, you know, I will sometimes check to make sure, like, you know, I'm not wearing a stained undershirt. But, like, I won't put on pants to Zoom. That's absurd, you know? Like, they're not looking <laughs> down there. And let, the only way they would ever know is in case my computer fell or something. But I'm not going to wear... Like, I'll wear boxers on Zoom. I'm wearing gym shorts right now, if you must know. But um, I'm not... Uh, I don't know. Like, some people... Like, because with this Jeffrey Tubin thing, I heard some people saying, like, you know, it's ridiculous. You should, you, you should be dressed, you know, you got to dress for, for your Zoom. And I'm like, that's, why? That's, 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 that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't think, I, I, I have set up like toys and stuff behind me. I have all my Star Trek badges here, Jordan. You yeah, could maybe nice. see like uh, lined up, <laughs> and I was sort of like semi jokingly challenged by my coworkers to like switch out toys every once in a while just to keep things interesting, or I'll get to see one of their kids in the background and uh, before a meeting starts, you know, talk to the kid about toys they have. I've seen some pretty impressive uh, Star Wars action figures. <laughs> oh, that sounds cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's been those those moments of opportunity are fun, but uh, like because I've now committed to being seen and I have like a light that points at myself and a background and whatnot, I'm almost to the point of overthinking it, which is nice because I'm never going to be in the accidentally caught masturbating point. <laughs> yeah, but I have the hiccups. But I which am is more with a good zoom etiquette. <laughs> yeah, it's more like I have like different, uh, you know, t-shirts. I think uh, you guys saw like my Chinga Lamingra Lamingra texture, or the basically fuck the border police uh, t-shirt a couple weeks ago. I have like one that has like the U.S. and the Confederate flag on a scoreboard, and it says U.S. one Confederate flag zero. <laughs> and I like switched that out before a meeting because it's not that I don't agree with the sentiment. That's why I bought the t-shirt. But why bring that to the Zoom? situation uh if it's necessary or not i feel like having a confederate flag on your shirt even an anti-confederate flag shirt is just not good zoom etiquette like just leave no room for misinterpretation there right that that is though a good question though because um wearing political garb uh at the office is something that you know i think is protected like aclu has defended that over the years um, but if you're doing it over Zoom, I guess really the, the boss man has like whether whatever it is, you know, whether it's a left wing, right wing or something crazy, you could do what you want. Right. What if I mean, you definitely can't. Yeah, well, I mean, you can't show your dick to people. No. But I mean, like, apparently you're right. That's the line. That's the speech line, which is fine by me. Yeah. I just yeah, I've gotten if we're talking about etiquette and not specifically showing your penis. Yeah. I'm with Katie where it's like, just, you don't have to throw that in the conversation. It's basically a business meeting. Yeah. No, you're, I think you're right. Me personally, I would not wear something that, you know, is going to tick somebody off because it's just, then you become, 
then you're like, oh, we got to invite Dave. Uh, Dave's going to annoy Bill, and then we got a whole situation. But that's yeah. that's that's. And yet how... Jordan is wearing his Rifkin's Festival shirt right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I dreamt last night I traveled to Rifkin's Festival. Um, the but the thing about Jeffrey Tubin is yes, having having thought a little bit about it today, the news is st- the reporting is still being ha- is still going on. But mm-hmm. what appears to have happened is they were in a lengthy meeting. And then there Zoom, was a, yes. there right. was a break, and the two groups went into a breakout session, and Jeffrey was alone. At which point, he then clicked over to some sort of sex channel that he opened was a new window, or perhaps went to a tab that was already open. Went to a tab and was in an interactive um, thingamajig. It was not just he was mm-hmm. watching pornography; he was interacting with someone, which means he was supporting sex workers, which is very very that's right. That's, mm-hmm. So that's good. Um, and he was really having a good time, but he just forgot that the other camera was on. So I'll, I'll, I'll give this, I'll give everybody the same advice that my seventh grade math teacher named Mr. Payne would give me and the entire class, which is you could cheat all you want, but the second you're caught, you're just fucked. Wow. So if you could cheat and get away with it. Awesome. But it's not if you against could, if you the could, rules for him to be looking at uh, pornographic you, uh, material. While if, you, if, you yeah. could, if you could turn off your camera and you could mute yourself and get away with that, like I'm not, I'm not making a quality judgment on what's happening. But he got caught, and so yeah. it's like but now I have questions. Job? Well, no. now uh, I don't know. Now I have questions like about like the, you. This was a break in between meetings, and it's like. Did he have some sort of weird cam girl schedule where it's like that had to be happening, or was this a choice? Maybe his subscription service is based on certain. It shows slots. a bad. I, it shows bad judgment. It does seem to be bad judgment. It does, and especially now, like if he had done it in the office, it would obviously be a fireable offense. I think like now everything. Right. Is a little bit I would fuzzier, actually. But I think it deserves strong uh, uh, punishment, which I guess is what's happening. Yeah, I, I agree with Katie. I would also to bring it all the way back to what the purpose of this mini segment ultimately. And mm-hmm. this is something I've been talking to uh, my wife a lot about, um, not cam girls and uh, masturbating <laughs> during zoom calls, but the idea of multitasking and how mm-hmm. multitasking is ruining people. Like it's, I actually think it's a big problem that a lot of us have because we have so many things that we could be doing with all of our devices all at once. And Jeffrey Tubin was multitasking. Um, you know, he had a hand, on a lot of different places at once. And when he should have been focusing yeah. on the meeting he was in and in lower stakes terms, I, mean, I feel like I'm on a, with, I'm, like a ton of people and like very important people. Like, right. like right. All but, and that's the, the thing. Like, Masthead was there. We, David Remnick was the one that told him to stop to put it in. You know, he's like, Hey buddy, we just saw your schlong, you know, it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> he's like, can you finish off the call please? Um, <laughs> so my, my, my advice to everyone is, I think Zoom culture allows us to be doing a lot of other things while on the phone with each other. And what we should be doing is concentrating and actually having an interaction to the best of our abilities during this distanced time. So I agree. Yeah. Focus while Did you're you see that? Did you see that host? Like, uh, like four of them get murdered during a Zoom conversation. <laughs> oh, that None Shutter of them movie? masturbated. None of them masturbated. Who had time? Entire successful. I mean, Ooh. apparently it only takes a few minutes actually, in between that, events. This is breaking news. Jeffrey Tubin actually said he was, he was being haunted. And that's <laughs> haunted. <laughs> what, he, what we saw was ectoplasm. 
Right. Yeah. Jesus. Spooky. This is a cool. This is only a podcast we can do with Jordan. This is yeah, like, an employee of Condé Nast. I don't know if I'm allowed to have this conversation at all. So. What, I think wow, is, yeah. what I think is is legitimately interesting, though, and I think it does. It's it's kind of fascinating. It's like put put Tubin aside because there there have been some rumors that I've heard that Tubin's kind of a skeezy guy. So let's just call it. I believe employee. Employee X, right? Employee X, man or woman, was in a Zoom meeting. There was a break. Everybody else was in a breakout room except for Employee X. And the reason Tubin was not in the breakout means that he was... He, they were doing a thing about the election. Um, not erection, election. And uh, Tubin represented the courts. So he was not in the Democratic wing or the Republican wing. So he was. he had... Take five, Jeffrey. So he took five by going back and empowering sex workers um, mm-hmm. and uh, was was doing his due diligence in there. And if he had turned off the camera, you know, then it would have been fine, like you say. But can you really censure him? He's in his own home and he had the time to himself. I mean, he could have been smoking a cigar. He could have been eating pretzels. He decided to do this act. That is inappropriate when others see, but he just forgot to turn the camera off. I, I guess what I'm trying to say You're is that it's bad. weird. It's definitely it's humiliating, <laughs> but like, should he be fired for this? I don't know. You know, I really don't. I don't know. It's it, it's a weird thing because it's at we, home. Because it's at home and it's right. over Zoom. If it was in the office, I, I, yes, he should be fired. I know that we don't do transitions on this show, but I think that. Uh, especially in situations like this, uh, if we don't take, say, one facet or view of it and then assume that we know everything about the situation, it might leave some room for nuance that, say, didn't make it into a film like The Trial of the Chicago 7. So I think Jordan's right. I don't think we should necessarily fire him. I think that is a decision for his bosses. I hope they're figuring it out. (laughs) Uh, but let's move on. All right. Uh, this uh, weekend, Netflix dropped on us another Aaron Sorkin movie. It is The Trial of the Chicago 7. I approached it from many different uh, emotional positions uh, with because it you know has lots to, in common with our current situation. But for those of you that don't know uh, uh, what The Trial of the Chicago 7 is, I encourage you to Google it. Uh, either before or after you decide to watch this movie, uh, and uh, I would say after. To... Let me just put mm, it out. Okay, there. I'm, I'm, I'm interesting. That's actually I had uh, the impulse good... to check the Wikipedia page during the movie, and I put that mm-hmm. impulse away, which is a natural impulse because you're, you're at home and you're on Netflix sure. and you can do a lot of research while you're watching something. That's bad. That's multitasking again. Mm. That's okay. basically Jeffrey Tubin masturbating during the movie. Call. <laughs> it is interesting to see what the movie wants to present to you and then be like oh so that's what was really going on which might be what dave's about to get into because he didn't finish his intro yeah that's right 
Yeah, they are eight people on trial, uh, put on trial by the Nixon administration, and they choose a, you know, very nice-looking Joseph Gordon-Levitt to try these activists for uh, very real riots that happened during the Democratic National Convention in 1968 uh, that the police... Uh, by all accounts of the previous Johnson administration caused. But well, the here piece, comes the, the next administration. The, the city of Chicago police. Uh, the city weren't. of Chicago police. But during uh, the Johnson administration. During the Johnson administration. Uh, Nixon comes in afterwards, uh, sort of doesn't uh, take the advice of the old Justice Department, decides to try seven people, eight people, uh, seven of which are... Um, non-black people who are actual organizers of the protests and uh, the eighth is a leader of the black panther party uh, because why not include him uh, who was at and- the convention but didn't organize the protest in any meaningful way correct uh, they decided he, say to he was tr- there for just a few hours yeah he gave, a, like speech and hours. Then left. He gave a speech uh, really early on in the first few scenes of the movie, um, this is presented as a like sort of unjust and overreaching application of a law that was established to police the travel of black activists. And there is the beginning of Aaron Sorkin beginning uh, continuing his battle uh, with loving fucking good old civility and rule and nerdiness and knowing your fucking law and uh, saying the Pledge of Allegiance, winning out over the act of protesting, which he often sees as uh, something that has been characterized since the hippies as being sort of a clown movement all the way up through how he portrayed protests in say like the newsroom uh where it would be like these whippersnappers on the internet just sort of degrading news and the respectability of news so i was expecting to go into the chicago trial of the chicago seven uh to see something that was adapt i expected to be as pissed off as i was by like something like 12 years a slave at best where it's like a well-made movie but aren't we sort of past this surface narrative of how we aren't we ready to get into some more nuance and um i wasn't entirely disappointed by the trial of the chicago seven but i was sort of disappointed by the conclusions it comes to i am impressed by aaron sorkin by sort of expanding his the views of his fictional characters uh, not to include any women, we're not getting that far yet, but at least to uh, include a more different look at activism that exists outside of civility. I'm just sort of sad that the framing that we're doing this is a trial film, which is sort of based on showing like the bullshit of civility, and then it ends with sort of a look, everyone is very civilly living up to their principles and we sort of yada 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 through the appeals process because they were a lot of them were sentenced like years in prison to like four years in prison for contempt of court. Like the story goes on, I think past. Did the they movie. actually serve for you? Someone actually served no, four years in prison? They did okay. not. They never actually served. Okay. Uh, and then they sort of you know title what they feel are the important points of the story at the end of the film, like this movie does. <clears throat> I think it's fine. I think it almost doesn't go to. It doesn't go deep enough into um 
uh, sort of how the movie needs to have a trial ending, which is these people stood up for their principles and accomplished something. And because of that, it chooses where to end when I think the story of the trial of the Chicago eight is that this never ended. We never got past this. Uh, And so I'm most disappointed in the movie in sort of not being able to connect that uh, by virtue, I think just of structure where, uh, you know, it wants to find a moment where towards the end of the trial, where it feels like these guys got a win and it picks a moment of that sort of overly links the entire movie directly to Vietnam when really this was about a moment that like the police state came for political speech. And, and not just that, Dave, you're, a very important point that you mentioned is that the, the thing that you're talking around, and once people see the movie, they'll know the ending that you're talking about, um, is good cinema. You know, it's like, a, it's like a, ooh, my, my, my heart's in my throat. Wow, what a good moment. It's completely fictitious. Oh, it has to be. It never happened, yeah. Um, just absurdly false. Um, and what it does is, uh, to speak to your earlier point, is it sh- happens to be that this topic is something that I'm pretty familiar with. I've, I've read Let a lot the about the... Let the expert take the stage. Well, I don't want to say I'm an expert, but I've read a lot about this trial and these characters. And if, in the 50 years that this trial has happened, anyone who would ever say, oh, it's Trial of Chicago 7, they would say, oh yeah, Abby Hoffman. Abby Hoffman is the star of this trial. John Lennon was the star of the Beatles. Abby Hoffman was the star of this trial. The only person who disagrees on the planet Earth is Aaron Sorkin, who thinks Tom Hayden is the trial of the star, uh, is the star of this trial. And Tom Hayden is, you know, he's he's George Harrison at best. You know, he's he's not the lead guy, but he is the guy who represents, you know, civility. You know, do it, you know, and do it the right way. And what the what the the movie doesn't tell you is that Tom Hayden did very much join the system and did good work. I mean, he was a very important figure over the years after the trial working for environmental and he married and for Jane Fonda. Well, that's the other thing. Speaking about women, how did he, how did he live a life where he could do good work for the next uh, 40 years of his life? He married rich. <laughs> that's the message. I mean, they probably <laughs> had a good relationship. It's not just they were, the money. They, they had how a child. How long were they actually to, married? Long enough to give birth to yeah, uh, a struggling child. actor, Dro- Troy Garrity. <laughs> All right. Yeah. The movie actually embodies what Jordan's saying in a scene where they have those two characters argue and they both have what they, you know, their base points about why they're protesting and what the point is. And it's interesting to see how that comes out. And Jordan's right. It comes out on the side of the guy who will eventually take elected office like he says is the right way to do. Yeah. I don't know if that I don't know if it comes out on his side as much as I I, I mean it, it, it's Aaron Sorkin he's an institutionalist at heart like we're saying but I think the power of the movie is how much credence he is willing to give to Abby Hoffman. Yeah, because he's the yes, I mean he doesn't the movie does not conclude that Hoffman's a stooge but um it neuters like it's it's shocking how much he kneecaps Hoffman and also kneecaps Jerry Rubin. Now the character Jeremy Strong, who plays Jerry Rubin, is the comic relief of this film, and Jeremy Strong's very very funny in it. And if you watch this movie, you'll think Jerry Rubin was just a, a stoned bozo, and he really wasn't. He was actually a very um, interesting guy and was as interest as, as um, uh, organized and, and radical and funny 
and uh, successful of an anti-war demonstrator as Abby Hoffman was. What happened later in his life was interesting because he did take a turn, um, an unexpected turn. And uh, incidentally, there are there's not one but two articles on VanityFair.com <laughs> that you can read written by yours truly about uh, what happened to these characters after the after the film for those that are interested because uh, it is surprising. Um, but the, the movie is 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 frustrating because I've seen it now twice and I, I'm not going to say it's it, it's not it's certainly not bad I mean Aaron Sorkin is in a league of his own in terms of writing really clever dialogue I mean no human being speaks the way Aaron Sorkin characters speak and they're really good and the opening montage is really clever there's a lot of that thing, you know uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from Citizen Kane, how they jump from scene to scene, finishing each other's sentences. <laughs> really clever. And like it compacts everything. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. And then you step away, you look at Wikipedia, like Patches says, or if you have read about this in the in the years coming up to it, you go, they left so much stuff out. And it's a little frustrating because in my head, I'm like, ah, I, I mean, not that I'm better screenwriter than Aaron Sorkin, but I could have been a really good consultant on this film. Like I have some mm. suggestions. I have some notes. notes. <laughs> I have my notes. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that's left out. Uh, it's, it's a frustrating movie that, um, and then by the end it is like, it's a little cheesy. Like, but you know, it, they just become, they just stop becoming people and they start just becoming talking points. But I guess that's what, well, there's like a, this feeling at the end. It's like, we won. And it's like, what did I just see that you define as we won? Right, like, right. No, the, it's the, all it, loss. The last like five minutes or so really kind of stretch <laughs> the ability to like make you feel good coming out. I mean, it's got like the classic like you know like eight paragraphs of like, and here's what happened next, and like it's fun. It today works we call like them a, computers. Today we call them protesters, fascists. Um, <laughs> Uh, it fully worked on me, though. I've also seen it twice. I watched it, and then I showed it to my wow. in-laws, who were both born in 1948. Of course they loved it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they See, weren't like Abby Hoffman that's, radicals. That's kind of why I'm not super mad at it, because uh, it's on Netflix, and people will watch it. And so yeah, and it doesn't and, do anything that I think is, like, super offensive or, like, disrespectful. It's just a, it, the narrative that it chooses from the wealth of actual angles you could have taken on it is super simplistic, and it's an Aerosorkin stage play. Yes. And I don't know I don't know if I was expecting anything less. I, actually, no. I was expecting it to be worse. So in yeah. that sense, yeah. I'm well, actually fine with and it. There, and there that. are some very... Um, very clear lines to like why this is relevant today. I mean, there are some lines, uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt's character kind of echoes a Trump talking point at one point. I mean, it's not, if somebody's watching it, who's a, who's a boomer who needs to be reminded. I mean, they that, do say like, hey, radical left multiple yeah, times. That's the exact yeah. phrase. They, that, radical they radical didn't left use that yeah. phrase in 1968. And that's, that's a Trump phrase. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, what I was going to say is like, if, if you're someone who was born in 1948, who, looks at the evening news and is like, ah, these protesters need to, they need to cut their hair and get a job. But when yeah. they were 20, they were kind of like anti-war. Yeah. They might look at this film and say, oh shit, maybe I should pay a little bit more attention to what's going on right now. The thing that Dave is saying about what, why he expected it to be worse is why I really wanted Dave to watch it as someone who was like protesting more actively than I think any of us this summer. And the fact that this movie came out after the summer of protests we have, like it makes it even more relevant than it would have been. But I think that really wasn't a foregone conclusion. Like this movie about white guy baby boomers protesting 50 years ago could have felt so outdated and irrelevant. And the fact that it doesn't 
is pretty impressive. Like, I think despite the fact that Bobby, what Bobby Seale went through in that trial is even worse than what they show on screen. I think they handled the Black Panther's role in this pretty well in that they weren't part of organizing the protest. They were important. It gives all this time to Fred Hampton, who's a pretty peripheral character in the story. Um, and these weren't protests against the cops. And they talk about how it wasn't protests against the cops. But I just feel like it could have been so outrageously out of touch given yeah, they the could real have, They could have picked seen. the Allen Ginsberg side of the trial and yeah. just gone that direction. I'm just I w- I'm impressed by how it felt topical, even though it is about something that is so old and about a bunch of white guys. I w- and, and I don't even I can't even put my finger on why it worked that way. Other than that, it's just well written and thoughtful. Yeah, very very. It's certainly well written, and definitely its heart is in the right place. Uh, the Allen Ginsberg scene should have been in the film because it's the funniest thing in the entire trial. <laughs> and I can what summarize is it. it tell, wait, tell me about it. Well, uh, you can read about this, actually, in my second Vanity Fair article that's live on the site right now. When I <laughs> To say, be clear, I didn't edit it. This is not no. malpractice on my part. No, not at all. Uh, the, the, the shtick was this. Um, the, uh, the defense, uh, Kunstler and Weinglass, they called up pretty much anybody who was a VIP at the Chicago 68 demonstrations. So that involved a lot of people like Jesse Jackson, Timothy Leary, um, uh, Phil Oakes, Judy Collins, who sang Where Have All the Flowers Gone from the witness stand, but then was told not to say, not to sing, so she had to speak the lyrics. Um, Dick Gregory, others and others and others. Uh, Arlo Guthrie, uh, and also uh, Norman Mailer and Allen Ginsberg. And uh, they said, Mr. Ginsberg, what did you do on the, on the 12th? And he said, well, I was doing my thing, and then I began... Uh, to do uh, to open my secret uh, magical phrase door. What is that, sir? I began to chant Ohm. Excuse me. I began to chant Ohm, and then Allen Ginsberg, who of course is this crazy, you know, beard down to his, you know, just giant beard, crazy hair, big glasses, starts Oming on the witness stand, and the judge is like, order, there shall be no oming in my in my court. <laughs> and then he's like, I'm sorry, I was just doing a demonstration. So then he started oming a second time. And then it came up again. He omed a third time. And uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character said, all right, you got four ohms in. That's enough, pal. That's enough. So he didn't know. <laughs> and he said that he does this oming to, to calm people down. Okay, so that's part one. A little bit later in the testimony, Kunstler and Judge Hoffman are shouting at each other as they do a lot. They're screaming. And the counsel's going, no, you're on blah, blah, blah. No, Sir, you're going to be held to contempt. No, you're going to be doing that. So Alan Ginsburg just starts going, oh, <laughs> and order, there shall be no oming. Because he goes, he's just trying to calm us down. He goes, I do not need calming down. Oh, <laughs> it's great. It's all in the transcript. It's all in the transcript. It's all online. It's a PDF of it. So that's a very funny scene. But you're right. Yeah. It's it's periphery, uh, but it's it's a very well. Funny I'm just moment. I I was honestly expecting that because, like I've said, other Aaron Sorkin properties haven't been that uh, chill about the idea of protest. So I thought he was going to come. You know, oh the hippies. So, you know they delegitimize the movement, and there is that argument. But at least this time he has that argument. Yes. <laughs> instead yeah. of just dictating to us that that's how he feels. Patches, how do you feel about this movie? I am pretty much in agreement with you. Um, I mean, I'm, I was pretty starved for like a legitimate film at this point in the year. <laughs> oh, so um, now you want to diss Rebecca? Yeah, now I'll drag Rebecca. <laughs> no, um, 
it is. I, Sorkin's been trying to make this movie for a very long time. Spielberg was going to make this movie for a little while, and I believe Sasha Baron Cohen has been attached to the movie for just as long as everyone else. So he's been wanting to play Abby Hoffman for like ten years. Um, yeah, he was actually Abby Hoffman's age when he uh, age first first one. But I gotta to say, it. I saw someone breaking down the ages difference as if they were. It didn't seem like that big a deal. I don't know. Everyone. It didn't bother me. I think Eddie old. Redmayne is kind of the most obviously like too old not in college yeah yeah yeah. not exactly in college um hey he's a student for democratic society but you know we're all students of life man even (laughs) thanks jerry rubin you know i think sorkin is not a great director i'm not sure what he adds to this movie from a directorial standpoint you kind of miss the like fincher touch or even the danny boyle touch of of steve jobs like trying to use the camera and try and use cinema to the advantage of this story it is what dave was saying it's it's it really feels like a play to me and i'd rather watch it as a play um and and it's and it's kind of stiff in the courtroom drama in that way. I think Faden Papa Michael's cinematography is just really drab and boring. Even compared to Rebecca, let me let me prop up Rebecca for a second. <laughs> I know I know that a Netflix movie can look beautiful because Rebecca is an example that even on my television it looked fantastic. This movie just looks like an Man. episode of television, um, and it plays like an episode of television, a really Ooh. long episode of television. Um, but that's fine because Sorkin writes great television and. Mm-hmm. Uh, West Wing is really good. Yeah, and West Wing is, is really it, good, and this is just monologues. Really long it's like yeah. uh, if you get this group of people, I think Sasha Baron Cohen is really fantastic in this movie, quipping and grappling, you know, locking horns with Eddie Redmayne. I've seen people kind of drag Redmayne as being the worst part of this movie. I like him in this. I like him doing his American accent or trying. I like him floundering during his big scene where. Uh oh, he may have told everybody to attack the cops and like that scene where he's just sweating so yeah. hard. And Mark Rylance is a real standout in this movie for me. Heard he of him? Few... He, he's, he's, he's going places, right? He's got a few <laughs> great monologues when he, he and Keaton have a big scene when um, the former uh, attorney general gets called to the stand. That's who, that's who Keaton did, plays. Did everybody else forget that Michael Keaton was in this? I so definitely that when they did. Go yes. find <laughs> you're like, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Dude, she shows up and it's like, like ah! Is this a secret spotlight sequel? It's a secret Eddie Redmayne versus Michael Keaton reprise of the best actor race of 2014. Thank you very Whoa. much. Wow, that is the oh, Google take right there. I, I want to uh, uh, follow up on something Patch has mentioned about, like, you know, Sorkin is not a great director. And when the, when they do leave the courtroom, there's, you know, there's the scene of the actual riot and, like, the kids taking the hill and the cops cracking their heads. And it's, like, it's pretty bad. It's, like... Sorkin does not shoot action. It's it's not good. And then there's an unforgivable sin in this film. So 1968, more so than any other era, has produced some of the greatest uh, popular music. <laughs> oh, I know about the, the clam show or the uh, band uh, show. So there's two things that happen that are just depressing as hell. <laughs> the music in the film is an atrocity. If you want to talk about... You know, the napalm they used in Vietnam was bad, but this really is almost wow. as bad. Almost <laughs> as bad. Almost as bad. Uh, the music in this film, from the very first scene, now the opening montage is so cleverly written, but the music bed is just like generic 1968. It's like we could hire like the cheapest public television uh, uh, commercial editor has a CD from the year 1999 on it that has a generic, generic 60s rock. And that's what this sounds like. It's just like bad, cheap, 
anachronistic 60s rock on these montage sequences that made me want to die. And then there are scenes from the park. So the Yippies, Hoffman and Rubin, they had against the what they call the, the, the Convention of Death, the 68 Convention, the Festival of Life. And they invited a slew of important performers. The only two that actually came were Phil Oaks, who's actually also took the stand and very, very uh, integral to the story of what happened in 68. He bought the pig, Pegasus. We didn't bring up Pegasus because Aaron Sorkin didn't bring up Pegasus. There should be a pig in this movie, man. And I don't mean the cops. I mean Pegasus <laughs> the pig. So anyway, um, Phil Oaks performed. Phil Oaks, if you don't know who Phil Oaks was, he was the prominent uh, protest folk performer of the 1960s. Uh, Bob Dylan wished he was Phil Oaks in 1964. Seriously. Okay. Phil Oaks was there. And he's not in the movie. And then there's the band, the MC5, which uh, was the Detroit proto-punk uh, rock band that, you know, still sounds modern today. And they performed at the festival. And um, there's footage of that in the aforementioned Vanity Fair article that I wrote. Um, what a whiff. So Sorkin has an opportunity to present any of this. And instead, there's a shot of the band shell. And it's just some sort of generic kind of like mandolin playing Mumford and Sons type band that not only is this weak sauce, it's just anachronistic. And it's like, you have an opportunity to present either Phil Oaks or friggin' MC5 or just something that would have been appropriate. And it's like, <laughs> he just doesn't know because what Dave said, he doesn't care about that. He cares about well, like, you know, laws and being lame. I think man. he cares kinda... about, I think Sorkin cares about explaining things. I, 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 th I was thinking a lot during the movie that, um, in, I'm trying to think when is the switch for Sorkin? Is it do what, what was his first movie that was like based on a true story? Was it social network? You, wasn't it a few good men based on a true story? I don't mm. think so. Maybe I think that was oh, a, that's also a play. Yeah. So it's yeah, kind of going from play to movie. Yeah. I, I guess I'm thinking that he, at some point went full like Michael Lewis, like started reading nonfiction books and thought that he was a Vanity Fair writer. Uh, to be quite honest, this is this was my thought that he's like. Wow, I'm using the amount of Vanity Fair promo in this podcast. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I think that he thinks he's a narrative nonfiction. Well, let me uh, let me take Vanity Fair down a notch for a second. Like highfalutin, um, verboten uh, narrative nonfiction writer who thinks that I... his word is law and that he is the like I'm going to explain this thing to you and. There's no room for cinema in this movie. There's no room for like a magical scene like you're describing, Jordan, um, where it's about music or where it's about the moment. Yeah. I don't feel myself in the crowd of the protests. I don't feel myself in the courtroom. I don't feel myself in history. I just feel the words coming at me in different directions. Yeah. And sometimes they're really electric because he is a really good writer of dialogue. But I don't think he's a good writer of of cinema and I don't I can't think of a single shot in the movie that no um, and this is why it's so fascinating me. because there's a movie coming up the pike that you guys may have talked about already called Mangrove which in so many ways is the mirror image this is of the this Steve McQueen movie, movie? Yeah. yeah is so, it a movie though TV there is a, a movie there is a, 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 a filmed piece of entertainment <laughs> uh, called Mangrove part of small acts uh the, we'll the, talk about it later. Yeah, the, there are so many similarities to Chicago 7. It's about the Mangrove 9. I mean, it's it's a very similar story. People tried uh, protesting in the 60s that were then the riot uh, happened. They were tried for causing the riot. 
And Steve McQueen is a filmmaker and Aaron Sorkin is a playwright. That's that's yeah. the conclusion. And they're both good. I mean, Chicago 7's good. It's just that it's, um, it ain't great. It's good. I want to def- I, I think Mangrove is great. On I look forward to yeah. talking about it. But I want to defend cinematically the second riot scene where the the part where Eddie Redmayne is kind of explaining why he said blood just run in the street. And there's like a very sorkin yeah. sequence where there's all these like fancy people in a bar talking about Buckeyes and then they get broken through the plate grass window. I think there's a nice momentum to that scene. Like it's not the, well shot movie, yeah. action, I, but it, it, I, that I, is the camera working with it. It's the a walk and talk. Kind of, yeah. Very large walk that. and that's, talk. That's what he can do. He, he's literally describing to you what's happening. <laughs> I don't like. Yeah. He, he, <laughs> the script directed the director for Aaron Sorkin because they're like yeah. literally like. 1950s out here, 1960s out there, and then they're like, "Oh, here's that camera no, shot." I get, here's I that. get that it's then very I saw something no one des- wants to see. I get oh, that it's here come the badges coming but I yeah. think it is. I think they work well in concert. But yes, yes it has energy. Creating, yes. what you're saying, it, it, yes. it's the only thing. There's another movie coming up the pike. Did anybody see uh, one? Was it One Night in Miami yet? Yeah, Regina yeah. King's movie. Yeah, it's another movie where it's a play, and there's one scene with action. The scene with the, with the, there's one the, where they go to the concert. That's the one scene that's a movie. Everything else is a play. Regina King will make a there's great a, movie There's someday. a boxing scene in the beginning of One Night. Maybe. Yeah, true. But what I'm saying is Regina King has made a great play where they happen to get it on film. Yeah. Waiting for Regina King's first movie to come out. Damn. She's very talented. Wow. Yeah. Very talented woman, Regina King. Yeah. Love uh, her, I love will, her the, work. Between Mangrove, this... One Night Miami, and then if Judas and the Black Messiah, the Fred Hampton movie actually comes out, it's just going to be a very interesting, like, short period for a lot of uh, 60s and 70s radical activists yeah, on sure. screen. That's all. Bring it back. And a lot of people are going to be like, if you like that, look outside. <laughs> people are going to be like, make love, not war. That's right. And then Jeffrey Tubin's going to be like, I tried. I tried. I made <laughs> love to myself. <laughs> The sin of Onan has stained the New Yorker magazine. <laughs> Katie, as a, as a Condé Nast uh, employee, do you feel... Jordan, you also receive paychecks from Condé Nast. <laughs> that's true. That's true. We've I'm just said a lot of positive things about Vanity Fair tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's... <laughs> poor Jeffrey Tubin. No, not poor Jeffrey Tubin. Let, that guy. Let, let's wrap up by... Place. Who's the VIP? <laughs> who's the VIP in Chicago 7? Who's Who absolutely nails it? Because it's... I mean, everybody's kind of on their own wavelength. It's very strange how everyone's in their own movie. Like, Jer- we didn't really talk about Jeremy Strong too much. Oh, uh, Jeremy Strong kind of is over in the corner easy, being like, hey, easy man, answer. What's good? He's, what is this? He's, he's so good, though, because he's not a cliche doing that. Like, that is such a cliche of a hippie, but he is such a fully-fledged weirdo character, even while the, doing that. There was that. something that a friend to us all, Allison Wilmore, said about his performance, which really nailed it. He's doing an impression of Bullwinkle the Moose. <laughs> and if you watch it again, he sounds like Bullwinkle the whole time. Wow. Uh, uh, I think he's great. I mean, I have a really hard time picking a VIP because I think there's like six or seven like really um, solid performances in this. Yeah. Uh, but Jeremy Strong is my number one boy. Frank Langella is very good too. I don't. So good. I don't care for him in this movie. I get it. I get the like the goof. I get that he sucks, but. What is he? It's a cartoon character. I guess he's supposed to be. I mean, we're supposed uh, to be exactly uh, the real guy with that uh, shitty, right? No, I know. Yes. I know he's awful. I get it. I get it. But I just don't think. Have you heard of white men in power patches? Yeah. Are you aware yeah. of what they get, what I they have. can do? No, I, I understand that it is true. 
I'm talking about the ecstatic truth of I mean, making I think it a good movie. Years, when your kid sees a Trump era movie, you're like, oh, okay, but come on. Like the guy playing Trump, like that was overkill. You're going to be like, no, you don't I think get the, it. My you don't child know. will never watch a movie where an actor plays Trump. And I will I never think if be we're going to argue. If this I'm podcast argue will be here in 50 years, prove you wrong. <laughs> if I'm going to argue in favor of Frank Langella, it's because he didn't go, he could have gone like arch and evil. And because he's Frank Langella and he, you know, manages to look confused at the right point before like some racist <laughs> shit comes out of his mouth. You kind of, for a little while, are like, oh, maybe this is just, maybe he's just a senile judge. And then by the end, you're like, oh my God, you know, by the the seal stuff. I mean, anyway. I will say that, yeah, that scene where they stuff uh, Yaha Abdul-Mateen, his mouth with the gag and then bring it back out, like, that is it's horrifying. It's awful. It's shocking. Yeah. And it's, it's worth pointing out, um, in the movie, it lasts 10 minutes. In life, it lasted three days. That's yeah, it was multiple ins- days. I, I, I get that, like, that's not, like, giving proper shape to how awful it was. I don't think the movie could have handled doing that for that long. Because then the movie becomes entirely about, like, I cannot believe they did this to this person. And you need Bobby Seale to be there, but also leave the narrative, as he did yeah. in real life. Because he wasn't eventually, you know, he wasn't part of the trial in the end. Yeah, it's crazy. Now, also, um, during this time... When Bobby Seale um, was having his, you know, constitutional rights stripped away from him, where he could not defend, did not have access to counsel in court, and he was bound and gagged, and over three days, and he lost blood circulation, he nearly passed out. In addition to this, he was suffering from three ailments. This is documented, and you can read about this on VanityFair.com on my article. He was a suffering from tonsillitis. B Suffering from a case of the crabs, which he had contracted because during the transfer from Connecticut to Chicago, they put him in a jail cell in Missouri that apparently was so filthy that he came out and had crabs and had to bathe in DDT because he was itching so much. And he also had infected testicles. I don't know where he got these infected testicles, but he had swollen testes to the point that he had to spend a night in a hospital during the trial for his infected, swollen testes. During this, he's being bound and gagged and had his constitutional rights taken from him. No one individual suffered more in 1968 than Bobby Seale. Wow. <laughs> See, I would and have liked a little alive, more which of was that amazing to learn. from yeah. Phil. Like, yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. Like, this, There's so many it? threads here. This could have been yeah. a miniseries. Every person could have gotten their own episode of this of this Sorkin show. And maybe they should have. I, I, I'm not one to like litigate whether the movie is historically accurate. All those conversations are always so awful and are meant to just poke holes in, in worthy art. Um, but in this case, you just even saying that is, is really engaging and I'd, I'd want to experience it. I just didn't feel this movie on, in the way that I hoped I would. I didn't feel the gravity of the war. Yeah, it, I didn't feel the gravity of the trial, but I felt the electricity of people, you know, that th- that courtroom high, that... Our blood! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An entire character thing hinges on, like, use of grammar. That's, like, the most... I did like that. Like, oh, yeah, Aaron and the movie, the movie loves it. And that's it's so good! So writerly, yeah. It's very it, writerly. it works, but, yeah. like, that's, you know, that shouldn't be... Hopefully this is the tip of the iceberg for people on the trial of the Chicago 7. Yeah. Or they're... Eighth or ninth Aaron Sorkin written movie, and they know what they're they're getting into. Do you I guys recommend get... that Brett Morgan documentary that came out in yeah. like oh yeah, seven or so? 
It's great. Um, I've and never also, seen it, but I it's see really it. good. And the um, HBO did a very early production uh, shot on video um, called Conspiracy that has amazing casting. I mean, just um, Elliot Gould is in it, Robert Loggia, uh, Peter Boyle. Uh, Ron Rifkin of Rifkin's Festival fame. Um, so, so Ron many Rifkin cool is people. going to sue you for yeah. saying that. Uh, I just want to say one last thing, and uh, give for those that are potentially interested. I did a, uh, I wrote a lengthy piece for the Times of Israel about the trial of Chicago. Not a condenass property. Not a condenass property. Um, I wrote about it from a Jewish perspective because what you don't see in this film is just how Jewish this trial was. This is something that Aaron Sorkin, for whatever reason, decided to really erase um what you may not know is that seven of the people involved in this trial were jewish not all the uh that includes hoffman rubin lee weiner another one of the defendants william kunstler the lawyer lena weinglass the lawyer judge hoffman the villain and also joseph gordon levitt's character robert schultz were jews and there was a lot of jewish stuff going on some of it very funny um and some of it uh a lot of stuff about politics within the Jewish community, Russian Jews versus German Jews, etc. That is a little bit niche for this podcast. But if anyone is a member of the tribe listening to this article, or perhaps would like to know more as, a, as an ally to the Jewish people, I would direct you to the Times of Israel to read this article because uh, you might find it intriguing. And you should also know that in, uh, in the record, uh, Abby Hoffman did call Judge Julius Hoffman, no relation, a Shonda for the Goyim. Called him that, and it's in it's in in the record, and uh, what that's a very funny thing to for Jewish people. <laughs> that is weird. That's a shame that didn't make it in there. That seems like something that Sorkin would have wanted to include. Yeah, well, you know, Aaron Sorkin is Jewish. Uh, I think he just decided that he, you know, as we discussed, there's a lot of there's a lot of material, and I think he just basically cut it all out um, because you can go very niche on that. But there's a whole. A whole thing going on there. It's a big trial. I think I, I agree with Patches, uh, which is a rarity for me. But I agree with Patches. <laughs> I think that um, I think this should have been a series. I really do. Well, now we're going to run out of things to uh, be able to produce. So maybe they'll just have all the cut hours from this movie and air it as a series next year when the movie still can't go back into production. <laughs> Ooh, it's going to be the Snyder cut of Court so- the Sorkin cut. Sorkin cut. Release the Sorkin cut. <sighs> Twice the monologues. <laughs> Uh, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. David should be back as well. Um, thank you, Jordan, for joining us. Uh, we're going to tell the people uh, where they can find us. In the meantime, Jordan, you should go first. Where can people find you? Is it uh, um, a van- Vanity Fair? I do occasionally do some writing for Vanity Fair. I write also for uh, the Times of Israel. I write for uh, Once in the Blue Moon, The Guardian. And um, uh, I used to have a podcast of my own. And uh, I'm going to break some news here in Fighting the War Room. Yeah, Breaking I'm ready. News. Uh, should all things go well, I'm going to have a, a new podcast that's going to be out, a mini podcast. I'll tell you all off the air what it's about. But uh, What is the scoop, then? Scoop. There's more. There's a Jordan Hoffman joint. This yeah. is called a, this is a teaser trailer. This is a teaser. Familiar with there, it. Are, there are, when I say there are people, I mean there are literally six, maybe seven people out there that want a new podcast from me, you know? <laughs> Uh, they're not my parents because they don't know how to listen to podcasts. No, there, there are there are at least at least six or seven people that have been saying since the end 
of my reign of terror for two years as the host of the official Star Trek podcast, which uh, uh, has been off the air for a while. When will I do another? Uh, there's another one coming down the down the pike soon. First time being mentioned anywhere in public. Wow. Ooh. I love a scoop. Uh, Dig it. The oral history of Jeffrey Tubin's. Yeah, I'm joining the tube cast. It's where uh, we tie Jeffrey Tubin's hands to his side. And then we show him. Jeffrey, uh, up here, up here, we're talking. It's it's always been about masturbators. It's always been called the tube cast. But now you have your moment. Yeah. Uh, Patches. Among the filthiest podcasts we've done in recent memory. Um, <laughs> I don't know why that made me so Matt Patches here, senior editor at uh, Redacted. And uh, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website, fightinginthewroom.com, where you can listen to the episodes. You can comment there, or you can uh, just keep watching that cam girl if you're interested in more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What if it was a cam boy? We don't know what you're. I could. Yeah, we should not. It could be a cam boy. He did get like some woman who's not his wife pregnant at some point. So I mean, yeah. sexuality is a wide spectrum, but yeah. decent guess. Hey. Uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at da7e. But we haven't had an American election yet, so don't be on Twitter. Just my advice. Ah, that's a good. That's a good. Mm. I'm also uh, the co-host of a podcast called The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast where we are rewatching Lost episode by episode. We are in season four, and I have great news for those of you that are wondering what's happening, uh, what to do during like election week. That will be our week for the constant. And if you know Ooh. anything about Lost, you know that's a great feel-good episode. Was that, that will a pure be dropping accident, on Wednesday. or did you guys uh, shuffle it to make it that way? It was an accident. It's just a wonderful accident. Uh, was Jacob it? watches over us. Mm. Whoa, Lost mystery. Yeah. That sounds to me like the work of the Dharma Group or whatever. Yeah, it, it, it was. <laughs> it was Carlton Cuse. He made us do it. I feel like uh, Jerry Rubin probably crossed paths with the Dharma <laughs> somewhere back in the era. Yeah. So you know what Jerry Rubin was doing right before he died? Wait, I'm not done yet. Yeah. I gotta do my thing. Now let me tell you though, real quick, because he he was interesting, Catman, uh, and he we were so he, close. He he did like get into like venture capitalism, but like with a purpose. Like he was into green projects, and he was like into like solar panels, and you know he was into like bringing minorities and women into business. But like right before he died in a by he got hit by a car because he was jaywalking in Los Angeles, which they include he, in his final yeah. title card for some reason. I just because they treated Ruben with disrespect because he was a, he became a punch the punch uh, uh, punchline because he sold out man. But he really he kind of didn't. But anyway, he did to an extent. The last thing that he was working on was he was selling energy drinks in like 1987 made of like kelp and pineapple and they were called like wow and like ion 26 they had this like weird sci-fi names and he was selling them in kind of like like amway pyramid schemes but he was also like helping the environment and stuff and then he got hit by a car and died jerry Rubin, what a life speaking of which katie <laughs> hey uh i'm katie rich i work with jordan hoffman at vanityfair.com um and on the little gold men podcast this week we're talking about rebecca where we also all read the book so we'll talk even more about the book um and also like super advanced plug uh the week of the election we're going to do a 2000 oscar season flashback so if you want to start rewatching chocolat or crouching tiger hidden dragon Ooh, why not do it? if if the constant doesn't sound like a good distraction for you maybe chocolat is we're close uh, enough to the election that you can recommend your election 
week show now. Thank God. It's I know. Um, <laughs> wait, and speaking of the election, if you are a listener to the show has been tweeting at me about your like election volunteering stuff, I'm just really happy to hear about it. Everyone go do what you can with the time that you have and the ability that you have. Only got a couple more weeks to go. Uh, Why don't I open oh, I'm this on... tab here while you keep talking about it, and I'll uh, I'll go check election <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Jeffrey, put that away. Was... No, they they wanted they wanted to see it for my election. Election. They asked to see his election. Oh. Uh... It was something about David playing. You could call it pizza tube. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the tube cast. <laughs> it was always about penises. What else would it? Do? David's gonna be sad he didn't listen to this one. <laughs> oh god, I gotta end this show. Follow me on Twitter and follow all of us on Twitter. Twitter at FITWR. I'm literally weeping. Um, please don't tweet us about different. <laughs> Tweet at Jeffrey Tubin. He needs your help, not us. Don't, don't, don't tweet at him. Answer these things. Answer this week's lightning round question. Jeffrey Tubin, answer this week's lightning round question, which is: In honor of Rebecca, What's... what is your favorite haunted house? Jeffrey's answer is his own right now. Jeffrey haunted Tubin. by the specter of his. What is your favorite OnlyFans? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, thank you for listening. We'll be back talking to you next week. <laughs> Take us out, Charlie. I'll tell you when I'm done. Boomba, 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 boomba,